This is the Thinking West Great Books Explored podcast. I'm Christian Poole. Here we dive deep into the most influential books of all time, read short essays and letters from the greatest thinkers, and discuss timeless ideas that continue to shape our culture today. Subscribe and study the great books along with us, and consider supporting us at thinkingwest.com to help keep us reading and sharing the good news of the great books. For now, however, we're entering again into the story of Socrates, as told by Plato in his book The Apology. In part one, we let his accusers give their testimonials, and we covered much of the background of Plato, Socrates, and Athens. And now, here we finally come to the trial itself, specifically the defense of Socrates. The scene is set for perhaps the most famous judicial proceedings of all time. Life and death are on the line. As the last drops of the clepsydra, the water clock, fall on a breezy hot day in Athens 399 BC, Miletus gives the floor to Socrates, and so Plato's apology begins. Socrates' family, including his wife Xanthippe, and three sons are likely listening in from the outside of the court, as Socrates famously begins, quote, How you, O Athenians, have been affected by my accusers I cannot tell. But I know that they almost made me forget who I was, so persuasively did they speak, and yet they have hardly uttered a word of truth. End quote. Now note how, because this jury is comprised of Athenian citizens drafted by lottery, Socrates is addressing the people of Athens directly, rather than today how we might address a judge or small jury, and this gives a particularly democratic feel. Appropriate for the times, despite ideas floated that Socrates might not think too highly of democracy. Though his accusers stand within yards of Socrates, the defendant curiously goes on to say how he doesn't fear his present accusers so much as those who aren't there. No, he fears his ancient accusers, lamenting, quote, I cannot have them up here, and cross-examine them, and therefore I must simply fight with the shadows in my own defense, and argue when there is no one who answers. End quote. In a sense, it's something like gossip that he fears here, that which people talked and lied about in secret to their friends and children, and which Socrates could give no defense or correction. It's like a rumor that takes hold in a school, and spreads uncontrollably, impossible to stop and even harder to reverse when it takes hold. The only difference is, this is no harmless rumor. This is an accusation which may bear the consequence of death. Anyway, Socrates now faces before him three main accusers. Perhaps we might think of them as the instigators of our high school rumor on steroids. Here's Miletus, on behalf of the poets, Anitus, on behalf of the craftsmen and politicians, and Lycon, on behalf of the rhetoricians. On what grounds did these three bring Socrates to trial for? Well, in Socrates' own words, he acknowledges them, saying, quote, Socrates is an evildoer, and a curious person, who searches into things under the earth and in heaven, and he makes the worse appear the better cause, and he teaches the aforesaid doctrines to others. End quote. It sounds just a little vague, doesn't it? What court today would even hear such charges? In many ways, we see just how simple Athenian law is. There is no judge. 
There's little legal language and few procedures, and there's apparently not a very high bar for bringing someone to court. It took the West many hundreds of years more to develop the complex legal system we see today. And it brings to mind the trial of Jesus by the authorities under Pontius Pilate. Different place, but it's not so different if you compare the two. There's a little questioning, a little prodding, but no true formal process requiring hard evidence. No innocent until proven guilty, as we would know today. And ultimately, Jesus of Nazareth is killed instead of Barabbas, the leader of a failed rebellion by what means? The people's decision to free Barabbas instead of Jesus. Democratic means, just as we will see with Socrates. If we ask the question, who killed Jesus? I find it hard to place any more blame on the Roman soldiers who did the actual killing than the crowd that demanded his crucifixion to Pontius Pilate. And if we ask, who killed Socrates? It's not that specific individual who gave the poisoned hemlock to him, as described in Plato's Phaedo, which we'll get to later. It's the Athenians themselves who killed him. At least all those in the 500-plus jury who voted, by democratic means, to kill him. So it seems democracy can be quite deadly. After all, it's in the spirit of democracy that the United States would go to war with the British Empire to gain its independence. Though we didn't form a pure democracy, per se, like the Athenians had, no, the U.S. would modify the Greek formula for government by making it a democratic republic. Not the same thing at all. Somewhat a balance between the democracy and oligarchy that Athens vacillated between just a few years before this trial. Everything has a cost. Giving the power over who lives and dies to the Athenian people had its cost. Giving that same power to a single monarch or an oligarchy has its cost too. And our author here, Plato, will expand on that for us when we get to his Republic. Another accusation is that Socrates has misled the youth or riled them up in some way, not violently, but in a manner we probably would deem disrespectful for their elders and injurious to the status quo. This is where we can get into sort of an investigative reporter mindset, or maybe the mindset of a private eye. And we're looking for a motivation of the people, why they would go after Socrates, or at least why they wouldn't want the status quo upset. And who, might we ask, likes the status quo? Well, if I had to guess, it would be the rich and powerful. Their status quo is quite nice. For the poor, their status quo is not so nice. And for those in the middle class at the time, who knows where they would stand? But those middle class peoples were few in number, for only recently has that middle class become a majority. A miracle of the industrial revolution and technological progress in the last 150 years or so. So we might guess that the accusers of Socrates are overall comfortable with the status quo and are probably quite reputable in society. They want to keep the status quo just as it is. If it's not broken, don't fix it. Now this is just a guess, or at least a thought experiment, but... There is more to it, as I explained in part one of Plato's Apology. Athens had just settled back into democracy after suffering a defeat in the Peloponnesian War and overthrowing the oligarchy that Sparta installed. So you must ask the question, was there even really a status quo of that decade? Everything was in chaos, so any semblance of a relatively quiet political world was well worth protecting. 
and if those prominent individuals saw Socrates undermining the new peace in Athens, they might just go after him. Aiming either to shut him up, put him in jail, exile him from Athens, or execute him, take their pick. Whatever they can get. And it's this accusation that I think, when framed in the light of Athens' recent turmoil, brings the strongest case against Socrates. That he in some way has undermined Athenian security through the rousing of the youth to question the leadership. Athens, though a democracy, appears to have adopted some quite authoritarian attitudes in the name of preserving their city-state. Sounds a lot like the communist nations in recent history, censoring dissenters in order to preserve power by stamping out the criticism. If you don't like what they're saying, lock them up. Now this accusation of undermining a newfound democracy is not foreign at all to the modern Western world. Once the United States won the Revolutionary War and their freedom from the British Empire, everything was not all roses and dandelions. The states were very loosely connected under the Articles of Confederation. They have no more power as the United States than they did as the separate states. When the French Revolution began in Europe, the infectious ideas of absolute liberty nearly destroyed our newfound nation from under President George Washington's feet. He was loved during the war, but... Many didn't like him so much as president, fearing that he was taking monarchical powers that the Constitution didn't grant him, as Harlow Giles Unger describes in his book called Mr. President. A great read, I highly recommend it. What did the first president of the United States have to do in the face of rebellions like the Whiskey Rebellion in western Pennsylvania where 5,000 armed men were ready to fight him? Well, he sent thousands of soldiers to crush it with an iron fist. How does that play into the idea of America being a free and democratic nation? It's off-putting at first when we learn that the ideals that form the nation couldn't always be encouraged. Otherwise, you have nations dividing into more nations in the name of freedom. And what happens when those divided nations face war with Britain or France? They get crushed. And this almost happened to the young United States. And it may be George Washington's heavy-handed approach despite those who called him a hypocrite for doing so, that saved the United States from returning to colony status under the British or French. So just like Socrates may have been sacrificed to save Athens from more revolution, crazy to think, right? The early United States had to crush those rebellions to save itself from destruction. Nonetheless, the accusation of corrupting the youth might have more legs to stand on than is initially apparent for more personal reasons than something written into law. Famed historian Will Durand writes very highly of our villain Anitus, saying, Anitus was a good man. He had fought bravely under Thrasybulus, had saved the lives of oligarchs who had been taken captive by his soldiers, had been instrumental in arranging the amnesty, and had left in undisturbed enjoyment of his property those to whom it had been sold after confiscation by the Thirty but his generosity failed when it came to Socrates. End quote. Isn't it strange how Anitus seems to show more animosity towards Socrates than to the violent oligarchs of the short-lived Spartan-backed regime? You see, there's a backstory to Anitus' hatred of Socrates. Anitus had a son who spent some time around Socrates and then became a drunk and, well, an embarrassment to his father. This is that accusation of corrupting the youth. It's real for Anitus. Anitus, it appears, also had direct confrontations with Socrates in arguing about philosophy, which seems all quite well and normal for Socrates. 
but Anitis clearly didn't forget those encounters either. So maybe mixing to Anitis' accusations against Socrates is a little retribution for wounded pride, chief among the seven deadly sins. Another accusation which seems odd when growing up in a world where teaching is a common profession is that, well, they claim he's a teacher that takes money. I mean, how crazy is that, right? He responds with all the wit and bite that we love of Socrates that he doesn't. But being paid to teach citizens would be a great honor. I love that response. Miletus makes some serious further charges that, quote, Socrates is a doer of evil who corrupts the youth and who does not believe in the gods of the state, but has other new divinities of his own, end quote. To which Socrates asks a series of questions showing that Miletus doesn't really even care about what he accuses. He just undercuts his entire argument. Miletus' biggest claim is to call Socrates an atheist, saying, quote, I assure you, judges, that he does not, for he says that the sun is stone and the moon earth. End quote. Now, I don't know what the particular beliefs of the Greeks about the sun and the stars and the moon were at this time, but Socrates gives some of his beliefs about the physical universe later in Plato's Phaedo. Miletus seems to suggest, however, by this accusation, that they have some sort of divine significance, or at least more significance than simple matter. The sun and the moon are more than material. I find it interesting that if Socrates did indeed claim the sun is stone and the moon is earth, that, well, scientifically and to our minds today, he wasn't too far off. Such a claim sounds more like the thoughts of someone a little later, like Aristotle and his more naturalistic style, than Socrates. Nonetheless, Socrates cleverly responds, saying, quote, Did ever man, Miletus, believe in the existence of human things and not of human beings? Did ever any man believe in horsemanship and not in horses? Or in flute-playing and not in flute-players? No, my friend, I will answer to you and to the court, as you refuse to answer for yourself. There is no man who ever did. But now please to answer the next question. Can a man believe in spiritual and divine agencies and not in spirits or demigods? End quote. One of my favorite quotes out of the whole book. Essentially what we're seeing here is the argument that if we believe in something, whose very nature requires the existence of something else, then, well, we must believe in that something else. It's a good and, in my opinion, very sound philosophical argument. It's like venturing into an uninhabited part of the world and finding the ruins of a long-gone civilization. Then, because there is found something which can only come from humans, we conclude that humans must have once lived here and built these structures. This is all of archaeology, after all, in a nutshell. Beyond the accusation of disbelieving in the gods, Socrates believes there's a personal element to their hatred of him. For he is more or less a commoner, son of a stonemason. They hate him for more reasons than meets the eye, he thinks. He says, quote, And yet I know that my plainness of speech makes them hate me. And what is their hatred but a proof that I am speaking the truth? End quote. I find it humorous, yet with much sadness, that if Plato's rendition of Socrates' words in this trial are accurate at all, and my English translation is similar to the original Greek in some way, or as much as can be expected, and this is what they call plain speech, then what do we speak today? By comparison, I'd say mostly incoherent gibberish. In reality, do I think Plato likely dressed up the words of Socrates into a more fashionable form when he was writing them down. 
Probably. However, it is also true that speaking is what Socrates did, and language in general was most of an education in those days. There weren't the plethora of subjects that we have to learn today in Socrates' time. So was the educated Athenian likely a much better, more colorful, more clear speaker than the educated American today? I would bet so. Plato was apparently present, and likely other friends of Socrates with whom he could cross-reference accounts of the trial as well. So we can't overly criticize the validity of Plato's account here, though we can scrutinize it a bit further. When reading the Apology, one must wonder what drove Socrates on his quest of questioning his fellow Athenians, which got him into all this mess and so much trouble. Well, Socrates gives the answer, a very strange answer that's hard to pin down as one of incredible arrogance or humility. Socrates cites his friend Chariphon of Sphetis, a man well known in Athens for reasons not entirely clear. He's depicted not just once, but three times by the playwright Aristophanes, so he was a somebody. Xenophon lists him as one of Socrates' closest friends, and Plato writes of him three times, here in the Apology and again in Carmides, and then thirdly in Gorgias. Socrates says that his friend Chariphon, deceased at the time, though his brother Caracrates was present at the trial, quote, went to Delphi and boldly asked the oracle to tell him whether anyone was wiser than I was. And the Pythian prophetess answered that there was no man wiser. End quote. There are several things to pull out of this account. First, we find it doesn't really answer the question of why Socrates has been the great gadfly, as he calls himself, to the Athenian state because it's clear from the context that Socrates was already sufficiently known for possessing some level of wisdom that would push this Chariphon to ask the oracle if Socrates was the wisest in the first place. So he'd already been engaging with the Athenians in discussion for some time. It does answer, however, for us that Socrates did not claim he was the wisest, only that the oracle claimed it was so. But what I really like about this statement may be a matter of semantics or a subtle comment on the oracle's hopes and expectations for all of Athens. She says, quote, that there was no man wiser, unquote, instead of saying he is the wisest, perhaps implying that Socrates is the best we've got and all the rest are just worse. It's a bit of a dark interpretation, but fitting given the turmoil Athens has experienced internally. Regardless, Socrates himself doesn't believe the oracle much, so he decides to put the oracle's claim to the test. If he can find but one man wiser, then he can rest assured the oracle was mistaken. Because one counterexample is all that he needs. Just find one man wiser than himself. And hence he goes seeking those whom others call wise in the city. Sounds like an innocent enough mission. When examining a politician, he reflects, quote, when I began to talk with him, I could not help thinking that he was not really wise, although he was thought wise by many and still wiser by himself. And thereupon I tried to explain to him that he thought himself wise but was not really wise, and the consequence was that he hated me. End quote. You can't read this without someone thinking that Socrates indeed is a bit of a troublemaker, cutting down another's ego to their face and probably with a crowd to witness it. Arrogant a little? Here, yes, I think so. Similarly, he recalls a conversation with the poets. Quote, and I further observe that upon the strength of their poetry, they believe themselves to be the wisest of men 
in other things in which they were not wise. End quote. How often do we find this in our own day, where someone who's an expert in X thinks their expertise extends to Y? And while there is something gained in the worldview of someone when they really know something, to be a true expert in something, better than anyone else in the world, we all know that an expertise is so deep only because it is so narrow. The days of the Renaissance man are long gone, and no one can be an expert in everything, let alone even in two or three things today. But Socrates isn't claiming any of that, only a wisdom attainable by man rather than a superhuman wisdom claimed by others. And in this regard, he comes off, well, humble. So Socrates, arrogant or humble in totality, well, I can't really tell. Now Socrates seems to have had a good idea of the outcome of this trial. He was no dummy, after all. He doesn't expect to be freed, and anticipates his destruction not by his accusers, but interestingly by the so-called hate of the world, as he says, quote, And this is what will be my destruction if I am destroyed, not Miletus, nor yet Anitus, but the envy and detraction of the world, which has been the death of many good men and will probably be the death of many more. There is no danger of my being the last of them. End quote. What does it mean to die from the detraction of the world? I can only make sense of this when interpreting this as not necessarily physical destruction, but a destruction of his legacy, of how the world will come to remember him. And for this reason, I think this is the statement of Socrates I think most wrong, for, on the contrary, his destruction seems to have multiplied his fame a hundredfold and to have preserved and amplified his teachings through the last 2,400 years thanks to his student Plato. We often find in writers, musicians, scientists, actors, and other artists more appreciation for a person after their death than when they were alive. It's kind of a sad phenomenon, and I wonder if Socrates hadn't died as a result of this trial and lived to an older age. Would he be the father of philosophy still today? We'll never know, but I don't think it's hard to imagine that the legacy of Socrates wouldn't be as incredible if he didn't die in this way. But this is all perhaps best talked about in our next episode on Crito when we get there, where Socrates wrestles with the idea of escaping his death sentence. Back at the trial, Socrates makes it clear he's not playing by the typical rules of the trial, saying, quote, A man who is good for anything ought not to calculate the chance of living or dying. He had only to consider whether in doing anything he is doing right or wrong, acting the part of a good man or of a bad. End quote. Socrates isn't playing the game. He's not going to bend one inch to save his life at the cost of losing his integrity. He says it more directly, quote, Understand that I shall never alter my ways, not even if I have to die many times. End quote. Socrates ends his defense by explaining that he won't demean himself by resorting to tears, and that it's not proper for a man of his age and reputation. He's holding his head high and wants rather to inform and convince his judges than to ask favors. Then we might think if we were in his situation. How many of us would do the opposite? Does it matter the cause of the trial? Would we maintain our position in a trial where death awaits the unyielding, but life awaits those who confess what isn't true? Just admit you did it, and we'll let you go. Just admit you did this crime, and, well, we won't kill you. This was a common occurrence in the USSR during the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. Many a person was thrown in the gulag for giving in to this very trick. 
perhaps for each of us it matters what the trial is about and what the judge or jury requests of us to confess to save our lives the great twentieth-century book nineteen eighty four by george orwell explores this weakness in us that under the threat of our worst fears we can deny anything even that two plus two equals four and in today's culture where everyone and anyone is cancelled for saying something that offends a particular faction we're censored before anything can even be said for fear of retaliation that's the worst form of censorship but we fear retaliation be it from our friends our employer and in some places the law but socrates was willing to die for what he saw as true what about us what would we die for or because i think that is a list so short what would we at least go to jail for lose our job for lose a friend for socrates ends his defense standing tall as the last drops of water fall from the clepsydra that water clock that is now empty one by one the five hundred or maybe five hundred and one jury members drop their votes into a bowl the votes are tallied and socrates comes up short with some two hundred twenty one votes in his favor and two hundred eighty against socrates is actually surprised that the margin was so low in plato's apology this begins a second chapter where socrates gives a response to his condemnation which he does with much fewer words per plato's account at least this in itself says something about socrates he will try his best to persuade but never to beg favors and when the law speaks he listens he justifies the provoking of his fellow citizens saying that he quote, sought to persuade every man among you that he must look to himself and seek virtue and wisdom before he looks to his private interests and look to the state before he looks to the interests of the state and that this should be the order which he observes in all his actions End quote. here he's revealed an underlying part of his philosophy that we should first learn virtue and wisdom before learning things in our interest like how to make money some two thousand years later the lord of montaigne knew this same thing when he wrote in one of his essays on education that quote, all other knowledge is hurtful to him who has not the science of goodness End quote. after all what do you get when you have a very smart learned man with great abilities but no virtue well you get a villain out of the comic books an evil genius socrates takes this logic a step further by extending it to how we think of our state and country we first make sure our society and government are good and virtuous before looking to its more material interests note however the order socrates says first make yourself virtuous before trying to make your state virtuous does it sound familiar Dr. Jordan Peterson, a Canadian psychologist who has recently become a superstar in the world of politics and religion, has said the same thing in a modern way. Clean your room before trying to clean the world. Good advice, in my opinion. Then the matter of Socrates' sentence comes up. The common punishments in Athens were fines, exile, prison, or death. Well, fines were out of the question in this case being far too light a sentence for this trial but interestingly enough historian wildrant says that socrates actually did try to get away with a mere fine of thirty minas today somewhere between ten and twenty thousand dollars in the united states if fine socrates knew his wealthier friends would merely pay and he could go on just as before 
But the jury was anything but happy with this idea, and this resulted in even more members voting this proposal down than his original conviction. Then what about exile? If exiled, Socrates explains, he will merely be shunned elsewhere. On this point, I'm not entirely sure Socrates is right. Perhaps in the other city-states that fared better in the Peloponnesian Wars, the political climate would be more tolerant of him. Maybe they'd be more open to open criticism. Nonetheless, Socrates loves Athens. He traveled very little and seems intent to end his days in Athens. Many people say their greatest fear is a cage. To lose their freedom and be locked up, and, well, Socrates appears to share this fear. If imprisoned, he says, he would simply rather die. Even though he's given an opportunity to suggest what he thinks to be a fair punishment, Socrates counterintuitively makes no effort to avoid the death penalty. He's not afraid of death. He concludes his remarks with no regret as he reflects that, quote, To discourse about virtue and of those other things about which you hear me examining myself and others is the greatest good of man. End quote. Not only does he say that talking about the higher things is the best activity, he says further that, quote, the unexamined life is not worth living. End quote. According to Socrates, it would be best that we were to die than to not reflect on the philosophies by which we live or should live. The playwright Aristophanes portrayed Socrates, emphasis on the higher things in his comedy called The Clouds. As a side note, when I read Aristophanes' Clouds, I immediately thought, oh, this must be where the expression head in the clouds must come from. But my quick research on that matter didn't find any sources corroborating that idea. But it's too perfectly fitting not to be the origin in some form. Some sources said the phrase head in the clouds originated in the 1600s, but it seems plain to me the idea behind that specific phrase is from Aristophanes about Socrates. Many of those 1600s writers and thinkers would have been very familiar with Aristophanes' critique of Socrates through the imagery of Socrates being lifted up into the clouds. Just my two cents on that matter. Anyway, how many of us live this examined life that Socrates is so intent on? And what does it really mean to live one? Is it merely practicing some sort of meditation on our daily lives, reflecting on the day in a journal, or do we need to ponder what is ultimate and constant in the universe? In the Christian world, this would no doubt transform into prayer, devotion to God, and repentance for sin. In the more secular world today, I think of the New Age type of spirituality and this other thing called mindfulness, which apparently has much older roots in the Eastern world, some say from Buddhist and Hindu teachings. I wouldn't know. I'm a Western man, hence the reason I focus on the Western works in this podcast. Socrates is advocating for every person, not just the educated, to be philosophers. This doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination contemplating complicated metaphysical arguments. It's rather thinking about what we deem as good, as true, of what things are worth doing and what we value. Even the question of whether to eat this or that might come down to some philosophical debate. Do I eat the thing that is good for my body but does little for lifting my spirits? Or do I eat the food that makes me feel good now, but bad later? Socrates, after all, was unsophisticated. His philosophy was one said in plain speech. And I think that's the best kind, and the only kind I can even talk about on this podcast. I'm not an academic in philosophy, or literature, or history, but I think through this podcast everyone can explore the great books, and learn from them in ways important and applicable to everyday life. 
I was very close to naming this podcast based on this very idea. This Great Books Explored podcast was almost named the Great Books for the Common Man because I wanted every listener to know that this was an exploration of the great books in layman's terms. No fancy lingo here. But for one, it was somewhat long, and two, in today's world, people tend not to understand that man is synonymous for human. Like the race of men in Lord of the Rings is not literally the male people of that species, it is referring to the entire species. So to avoid all that, I went with Great Books Explored. Nice and short. Back to our situation in Athens, Socrates gets exactly as he chooses. Death rather than exile or imprisonment. Will Durant, interestingly, calls this the, quote, sacrifice of Socrates on the altar of a dying faith, end quote. Socrates, however, never one to lose an argument except now when his life depends on it, makes sure to let all the jury and his accusers know that he hasn't failed to secure his freedom from a lack of words, but rather by his refusal to defer to baser means like begging. Maybe some of those jury members were so cynical as to vote against him just to see Socrates break. On the contrary, Socrates is puffing out his chest and doubling down as if to say, I could have if I've tried. I did this the harder way. Many historians take the view that Socrates would have escaped with his life had he been more conciliatory, more apologetic in his response. But Socrates instead sticks to his principles even in the face of death. He says, quote, for neither in war nor yet at law ought I or any man to use every way of escaping death. Quote. He then goes on to say, in something that to my Western mind sounds so biblical, quote, The difficulty, my friends, is not to avoid death, but to avoid unrighteousness. Quote. Socrates prefers death to doing what is unrighteous, even when believing himself innocent. This he expands on in Plato's next work, chronologically called Crito, so we'll revisit this topic in due time. In the remaining moments of his time in the spotlight, Socrates prophesies that greater judgment from the people will haunt his judges after the execution. Socrates says he has some little inner oracle, which I might call something more like a conscience, that has in the past served him well as a guidepost on whether he was doing wrong or right. And on this day, he confirms that his inner oracle agrees with everything that has happened at the trial. Everything's happened just as it was supposed to and hence he concludes that his own death will be good for him. He concludes further that death must be good, for if there is only unconsciousness afterward, death is but a single night. But if it is more than that, then he has all eternity to converse with the great minds free of judgment. Perhaps Socrates is, even now, conversing with those greatest minds. Socrates asks a final request. Quote, when my sons are grown up, I would ask you, O oh my friends, to punish them. I would have you trouble them as I have troubled you, if they seem to care about riches or anything more than about virtue. End quote. Socrates, a teacher, is showing us again his prioritization of virtue above everything else in education. And he doesn't ask for them simply to care for or to take his three children under their wing. Rather, he says, punish them. They go astray and become what we might describe as worldly. He knows that we are often made better by punishment, and proper punishment is not arbitrary but corrective and hence a good thing. Now that we're nearly to the end of this apology, it might be worth a moment to reflect on the significance of this work compared to the other works of Plato, or specifically, the other works out there about Socrates. The apology is thought to agree well in both tone and character with the other significant biographer of Socrates, who is a certain man named Xenophon. 
and Xenophon wrote about the trial of Socrates based on the account of it from his friend Hermogenes. So Xenophon's account is at least second-hand, while Plato's is apparently a first-hand account, though surely Plato's more partial to Socrates than Xenophon. Xenophon admits what anybody could plainly infer as well, that Socrates likely would have come out a lot better in the trial if he had taken a more conciliatory tone, if he hadn't come out swinging as he did and merely tried to appease his accusers. At least a little bit. He would have fared much better. But would we even know of Socrates if he had done so? If he had given even an inch to his accusers? If he hadn't in his mind defended what is true even in the face of execution? We might not know of him today. Many historians think that the Apology represents the quintessential Socrates, combining aspects from both other writings of Plato and from Xenophon's portrayal. So not every account of Socrates in the other works shows a perfectly consistent picture of his character and mannerisms. That doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong. Perhaps they embellish a bit here and diminish other features of him here and there. But we do expect a certain level of similarity when reading accounts of a single man, though we admit he might also evolve a little bit in his character and traits over time as well. Historians tend to think that the Apology presents a very distilled version of Socrates, an idealized Socrates and his defense rather than a more realistic three-dimensional character of Socrates. It's a cartoon version of the man and the trial rather than the documentary. Nonetheless, isn't all history written this way to some degree, leaving out the bad, highlighting the good as the victors are the ones writing it? But strangely in this case, it's not really the victors writing this story of Socrates. No, it's rather the losing side, the side that gets their teacher executed. It's Plato recording the noble way in which his teacher stood courageously for what he believed, no matter the outcome. In any book, the beginning and the end are arguably the most important. We began this episode with the opening words of the Apology. Now then, it only seems right that we should end with Socrates' final words of the trial. Quote, The hour of departure has arrived, and we go our ways, I to die and you to live. Which is better, God only knows. End quote. Thanks for tuning in to the Great Books Explored podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and the previous episode and want to revive the great books and the great conversation in this crazy digital age, please consider supporting us at thinkingwest.com slash donate. And look, we complain about our culture going down the tube every day because of its ignorance of better things to think and talk about than what's on TV or Netflix or the radio or the like. We're tired of a culture praising stupid entertainment over content that can get us to think again to desire something greater for ourselves and our neighbors. And in my own small way, I hope to make a dent in the monolithic six-second attention span of the culture by pointing to something better, the great books. Help me to do that very thing by sharing this podcast everywhere and to everyone you can. Rate, subscribe, and leave a comment on what you're thinking about these works about Plato, Socrates, the trial, the meaning of all of it. But most importantly of all, read on.